So I've been um, thinking, writing actually a bit about the body. And I thought I would um, talk a little bit about what I've been writing. And um, part of what I've been thinking about, writing about, teaching about um, is uh, the common or traditional split between body and spirit or body and mind. And it's pretty much common in all religions to some degree or another, to a greater extent or other, depending on where in the continuum of the teachings of any religion the teacher or the teachings fall. Tends to be more to the conservative side, will tend to denigrate the body or see the body more as a problem or um, an obstacle or to be transcended. On the more liberal side, the, the, the body seen more as the vehicle or the opportunity, um, the means or the medium through which the teachings are realized. And this division is true in Buddhism. It's common, certain, even, even within the Buddha's teaching itself you can per begin to perceive this split or the, the, or the um, ambivalent relationship towards the body. Here's the Buddha writing about the body, which sometimes he would talk about how the body needs to be conquered or overcome in that way. And he says this. He says, this body born from the field of karma, issuing from the water of desire, is characterized by decay disfigured by tears and sweat, by saliva, urine, and blood, filled with filth from the belly, with marrow, blood, and liquids from the brain, always letting impurities flow. Bodies are the abode of impure teachings and ugly stenches. Should I go on? <laughs> He's just getting going here, the Buddha. He says, covered with leathery skin, punctured by pores, teeth, and hair, weakened by the accumulation of excrement, pus, fat, and saliva, held together like a machine by sinews and nerves, made beautiful by the flesh, but subject to the pains of disease, always tormented by hunger and thirst. It is the, this body with its apertures is the abode of old age and death. Having seen this, what wise person would not look upon their own body as the enemy? That's one flavor. It's a little more on the conservative side of the teaching. And then you have some other sides of the teaching. You have the Buddha also speaking. He says, one thing, one thing, O practitioners, if developed and frequently practiced, leads to a deep stirring of the mind, to great benefit, to great security from toil, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a happy abiding in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and deliverance. What is this one thing? It is mindfulness of the body. So you hear on one hand the body is like the problem, on the other hand, the body is the way, is the vehicle to, to uh, this very body is the means to security, clarity, the fruit of 
uh, knowledge and deliverance, knowledge being rooted in the word gnosis, meaning the knowledge of spiritual mysteries, that this is where we discover the truth, the reality, the way things are in this very body. So, what to do? What to do given that both are true? And all the bad things the Buddha says about the body, it's true. I mean, you know, if we were to unzip right now, right? I'm not talking about your clothes, your body. It's kind of messy. It's not so beautiful as the outside. And it's subject to all the vicissitudes of sentient life, right? It's a, it's a sure bet that the body will age, that the body will get ill, that the body will die. Basically, you can take it to the bank that way. You know? Everybody on board with that? Right? I mean, are we really on board with that? It's actually hard to really get it. Really get the impermanence of the body. The temporality of the body. The Buddha said, if we understood the truth of impermanence fully, we would be awakened. We would be awakened. And we understand it to some extent. But part of practice is seeing how to let the truth keep permeating us, uh, um, um, saturating us. Um, and, And then they would say to our very marrow, to the very bones of our understanding. So what I'd like to talk about, given this paradox of teaching, is the three stages of how the body's understood in practice. Three stages. And let's see. As people come to the Dharma, as one comes to practice, the first stage is highlighted by a deep appreciation of our life, a deep appreciation of human life, of physical embodiment. And it's characterized by this phrase, precious human birth, that really, as Suzuki Roshi would say, just to be alive is enough that we're here, that we're here at all, in this form. And of course, one of the beauties of mindfulness practice is it asks us over and over again not to take anything for granted. And so as mindfulness deepens, as our capacity to pay attention, to um, be aware in in a felt way, an immediate way, in an alive way, that the actual um, um, the magic of being alive or the mystery of being alive the the um, almost unfathomable reality of life itself shows itself that we stop taking life itself for
for granted. We don't just assume that it will be here forever. We understand, we understand in a deeper and deeper way that this is all temporary, that this is a moment, and a moment for which in some ways we'll never exactly understand how it all happens, that here we are as embodied or sentient beings who relate and talk and look and hear and taste and touch and think and feel. It's, and, and even with a moment's reflection, we all know that it's kind of amazing that we're here. And so Buddhism begins by emphasizing this preciousness. And the teachings that the Buddha gives is he compares it to a world of water. Like as if the world were, were one ocean covering the whole world. And in this world of water, there's a, basically a buoy, right? A, a wooden yoke, like a donut, floating on the surface of the water. And beneath the water is a one-eyed sea turtle. I'm not sure why the one-eye, but it, it adds to the flavor. <laughs> the one-eyed sea turtle who rises to the surface of the water once every hundred years. And the fortuitousness of human birth is compared to that turtle rising to the surface once every hundred years. And if that if that turtle should happen to put its head through this buoy that's floating on a world of water, that that's how rare human life is. And, and given the rarity and the singularity of our human existence, of our actually being here, in your body right now, that that, that body, that precious human birth, is to be appreciated. It is to be appreciated through our... Um, attention, through our gratitude, through our wonder or awe. You know, it's not always going to be awe like totally wow, but just a, even a subtle or simple appreciation for this is not permanent. This is not permanent. In some sense, permanence is the intoxication that we are attempting to see through that we are attempting to um, let go of. The idea of permanence. And we all will let go of it. We all will let go of it. And you all have, in many ways, many times, the changes that happen in life, in human life, the changes that happen in physical life, in bodily life. Even a moment of getting sick means letting go of health. Doesn't mean that the illness will be forever, then health can come again. But just as we, we know it then, we know it at the moment of getting a cold or flu or getting food poisoning or, or worse. So to begin to appreciate the preciousness of human life, the marvel of our incarnation. And, and any of these any, any teaching like this can be a practice. So part of the practice might be taking a few minutes a day to reflect on the preciousness itself. What would it mean to start your day when you wake up just to feel your body and the, 
and the mystery of being alive this morning, this day, instead of taking it for granted, instead of overlooking, as we you know normally do within the busyness and the preoccupation and the the usual catastrophe. Now, the, so the first stage in order as a way both to um, appreciate life and also cultivate what the Buddha would call beautiful states of mind, appreciation, gratitude, wonder, these are beautiful states of mind. And they're beautiful states of mind from which to turn towards practice, from which to start to examine more deeply our human situation from which to see, well, what is it to have a body and to be alive? Simply letting go of the intoxication with permanence is a, is a wonderful way to begin to look and examine what is this human life and what is the possibility, the potential for human life, for our life, for who we are. What's the depth of our potential? What's the depth of our maturation that is possible as human beings? What's the depth of freedom that we might know, that we might discover? And what is it that the Buddha discovered that he's offering to us, that he, he, uh, um, um, that he devoted his life, and it said many lives to, but he devoted his life to, and then he... And from that perspective, he looked at human life and talked about how precious it was that we had this human body. So the wonder of our precious human birth, our precious human embodiment, as we begin to ground in practice, the middle stage of working with the body is a little bit a swing then from this first view, not in terms of denigrating the body exactly, but in beginning to disidentify from the body, to begin to look objectively at the body, clearly, to begin to look at human life, to see it as it really is, rather than in how we expect it to be or imagine it should be or the fantasy of how we want it to be but starting to ground in the reality of the way things are and the body then becomes a means for this training for training the mind for training the mind to see the Dharma also talked about as Buddha seeing Dharma training the mind to see the Dharma And the, all the meditative trainings, like the, the, all the different body practices, are to begin to see objectively. So what does it mean to see objectively? It's a word sometimes people don't like, as if there's no objectivity. But there's some, there's some clear limitations to physical life. And so we want to begin to know that. We want to begin to root in reality rather than fantasy. We want to... Um, the Buddha's teaching is talked about as um, the letting go of ignorance. 
Another way we could think about that is to stop ignoring reality. Stop ignoring the truth of the way things are. That ignorance or ignoring is the cause of suffering. And that if we want freedom, if we want release, then we want to stop ignoring. And so the Buddha taught any number of practices, but, but there's the, the body practices are the foundation of that movement to see clearly. And so he starts simply, and you can just feel these or check these out, even as I say them, simply with feeling the form your body's taken right now. Right? Don't move for a second. Feel the form it's taken. This is called mindfulness of posture. And it means, partly it means to be aware of the posture. What does that mean? It means to feel the posture, to sense the posture, to see how to bring body and mind together in this posture, and then when you move in the next posture, and then as you stand in that posture, then as you walk in that posture, and so the Buddha teaches to be mindful of the body in, the, in each posture that we find it in, in each shape that the body takes, because the body changes shape. And that movement is a movement of bringing body and mind together. There's a knowing, but the knowing isn't from a distance. I'll say more about that in a moment. One of the most basic teachings he offers is the teachings of mindfulness of and with the breathing. To be mindful of and with our breath. And so you might just notice your breath as I'm talking. Notice how the breath is happening every moment that we're alive. It's one of the characteristics of life is the breath. A physical life is the breath. And the breath is a beautiful tool, means for teaching us to be present, to be awake, to be sensitive, and this is part of the body teachings and the teachings on mindfulness of the breath, is to be sensitive to the whole body. That the breath will sensitize us, or, or really another way we could think about this, it will reawaken our natural sensitivity. The natural sensitivity that we're born with. As a baby, we, we see how sensitive we all are. And that sensitivity gets layered or veiled or covered or in some way we lose touch with the, the, the sensitiveness of our sentience, of our aliveness. And the mindfulness of breathing and, and the body both will begin to reawaken our sensitivity to life, to all of life. It's one of the things people love going on retreats. And even after a few days, they'll do something, they'll eat something, or they'll drink something, or they'll see something, or they'll hear something. And it's like their senses are new again. Their senses are alive. The, the Kabir, he says, um, when the eyes and the ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. And that's, that's the promise and possibility 
of practice, of Dharma practice, that we come alive again. We're in, in the West, we would say reborn again. I guess in the East, we can use that too. I'm thinking more of Christ being arisen again, that there's that image of, of, of life, of being reborn into our true body, our real body, the body of awakening. So the Buddha talks about not only in each form with the breath, but then in each movement, in each activity. And one way you can play with this is to start to practice, see, just reflect for a few moments about what's the activity that you're least present in? What activity in your life are you least present in? Maybe for some people it's at work or some people it's talking about something difficult with somebody or some people it's going to the bathroom or some people it's when they watch TV. So if there's an area that you see that's most difficult, then begin to highlight that area. Make that the most important part of your practice. You know the the instruction I like to give for TV practice. Sit in front of your TV and be mindful and don't turn the TV on. But keep your eyes open. Watch the TV. <laughs> you know, sit there and really, but, but actually feel your body as you're sitting there. Or even now as you're watching me, feel your body as you're watching me. And it's the same principle to begin to establish a mindfulness in an area where usually we kind of get taken away. Or we forget. Or we get um, enchanted. And we lose touch with the living presence of what's seeing me or the TV. And then if you're doing TV practice, after you've established the mindfulness with the TV off, then you can up the ante and turn the TV on, which is even a little more complicated. But worth practicing with. One of my teachers had a really big awakening experience watching TV. You know, he said, he said, um, yeah, I was watching the TV. How did he say it? I was watching the TV, and then, then I started to see the space around the TV. Like he wasn't just captured by the image, but all of a sudden the whole space of being in the room. And maybe you can see the space now. You can start to feel the space here in the room instead of me or the object that you're paying attention to. And then I can't remember what he happened, but I remember he kept saying. Then he realized he was the TV and. that's a a whole nother level so then mindfulness and movement all activity mindfulness of the elements of body earth, air, fire, water at a certain point we can let go of our ideas of our conceptualization of our experience and we can start to feel it as a density or a warmth or a fluidity or, or um, a movement. And now we're moving to the ele- what the Buddha talked about is the elemental nature of reality. That we are made of the same elements of all of nature and that we can actually perceive this, not so much needing to conceptualize, but it's actually our direct experience. Hardness being the earth element. Heaviness being the earth element. Temperature being the fire element. Um, fluidity and and, um, um, cohesion being part of the water element. And then the air and movement is part of the air element, the breath and the gases of the body. 
and the movement is all part of the air element. And we can begin to pay attention. That's a whole way to practice mindfulness that's very powerful to start to come out of the narrative of our experience and into the direct and immediate and the most fundamental level of physical experience or one of the most fundamental levels. And then, of course, the the Buddha, if we're going to contemplate the body, we contemplate the impermanence of the body. The Maranasati, the death meditations, or the in the Buddha's time, they were the charnel ground contemplations, where one would go to a charnel ground and contemplate a dead body, to actually sit with the dead body. And so these are all skillful means so we can begin to be, begin to become embodied, present, awake, and comprehend the actuality of our situation, to stop ignoring the reality of our situation. And then all our training moves towards one end here, what I was referred to at first as disidentification. That's one way we can talk about the not clinging to anything, including the body. And so the Buddha, after each of these meditation practices he offers, he offers this refrain. In this way, one abides contemplating the body as a body. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. That is how a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. And this is a key refrain. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world, not even our bodies. That we begin to find a freedom, a knowing, a wakefulness that is not bound by the body. And so the power of disidentification And oddly enough, the more we are present with the body, the more we actually begin to inhabit our body, to fill our body, to to ameliorate the separateness from body and mind, the not clinging happens naturally. The disidentification happens naturally. We don't have to do it. You don't have to do the disidentification. What we need to do is practice and keep getting closer, deeper, letting, letting consciousness permeate the body until there's no separation, until there's no somebody watching the body from outside. That the body's being known because there's nothing separate from the body. The sensations are known not from a distance, but from the immediacy of sensation itself. My, one of my teachers said that our attachment to the body is, is conversely proportionate to how much we're not inside of our body. That it's the separation that actually allows for the clinging. When we totally inhabit the body, in some sense, there's no one to cling at that point. Instead of our assumption of taking the body to be who we are or taking the body to be permanent or taking the body to be the limits of our awareness, 
we begin to open both to the ephemeral nature of the body and the mysterious nature of this precious human birth itself. Now, a word of caution here. And, and, the, and the word of caution is often people, or not often, people can confuse a disidentification from dissociation. That there's a way that we think to be disidentified is to split off from our body or be separate from our body or to be distant from our body. And sometimes people do this in a kind of mental way. It's kind of a mental separating and then feeling detached as opposed to non-attached. And I'm, I'm making a distinction between the two words. That detachment is, is a kind of dry, distancing, lifeless, um, um, really splitting away from the body. And that non-attachment is complete embodiment, full presence, full presence. And they're very different things. That, that, that embodiment, non-attachment is not just the cerebral going away from the body. It's not a form of escape from a body that we disdain. It is a way of being fully incarnate in our physical world. And this allows us to come into harmony with the way things are. Partly because the body is such a natural expression of the way things are. It's life and it's death. It's beauty and it's temporality. It's mystery and it's ordinariness. It's just a body. As we deepen in practice, as we begin to mature in practice, as our relationship with our embodiment begins to grow, then we begin to move to the third stage of practice to the ripening of the Dharma in, in relation to our body. So beginning with appreciation, gratitude, awe, training in disidentification, in letting go, in objectivity, and then maturing into presence and understanding the way things are. The way things are. Seeing that the body, physical incarnation, is the vehicle for the Buddha qualities to arise in human form. It, couldn't, it's, it can't happen any other way. That it is through us that the Buddha qualities manifest. Understanding, love, compassion, wisdom... Our bodies are the platform through which the Dharma expresses itself into the world. And you can notice this when you're not clinging to anything in this world. And I, and I want to be a little careful here because, because um, it doesn't mean you're not clinging forever, never again. That would be a great thing. That would be good. But just to notice the difference when one is clinging and one is not clinging. When there's a sense of freedom and when there's a sense of suffering. 
and what, what's being expressed when freedom is here to begin to recognize our freedom even if it's just a moment even if it's just a day day is a good thing a day of freedom is a beautiful thing an hour of freedom a moment of confronting some situation and seeing oh we're not ta- we're not actually acting in the habitual compulsive reactive way but we're present and awake to the situation and then our response comes from a place that's not based on a sense of self-centeredness that's not based on fear or reactivity or anger anger or fear could even be there but that's not where we're located that's not where we're identified at that moment at that moment we're independent of the circumstances and the Buddha qualities can respond to reality as it is So as we recognize the bodies as the platform through which the Dharma expresses itself, expresses its blessings into the world, we can use or recognize some of the imagery that comes especially in the Zen tradition. And the the image of practice is as if one traverses a, a great mountain. And, and at the bottom of the mountain, we stand in awe and appreciation just that the mountain is there, what it looks like, how beautiful it is, magnificent, mysterious. And then we begin to climb the mountain. And in the process of climbing the mountain, we learn about the reality of mountain. Now it's not just from a distance that we're looking, but we're in the mountain, we're on the mountain, we become part of the mountain and the mountain begins to reveal its mountainness to us. At the same time, we learn about ourselves as we go. We learn about our capacities, our limitations. We're challenged over and over again to go beyond ourselves, beyond the small sense of self, as we climb the mountain. The mountain's a very traditional image for many spiritual practices. And then we get to the top of the mountain. We get to our goal. But what's interesting in the Zen tradition, this movement to the peak, to the apex of the mountain, is then the realization as we see from the top, then we see the world with new eyes, we hear with new ears, it's said. But one of the things we see is that this is only the beginning, that it's not the end. What we thought was going to be the end, the top of the mountain, our goal, is actually only the beginning. And then the the journey of descent starts to reveal itself. That we return to the world. We return, it's said, in the marketplace with gift-bestowing hands. There's sometimes in Zen they talk about uh, that the, the practitioner who has an awakening experience returns to the marketplace with bliss-bestowing hands. That it's physical. That the hands touch the world. That enlightenment touches the world at that point. And, and the other image um, that comes is, is the image of compassion. That enlightenment is sometimes um, referred to as the whole body as hands and eyes. The whole body as hands and eyes. And it's a beautiful image because the hands, and the hands touch and the eyes see. 
the suffering of the world. And that part of returning from this apex is to return with the heart and the body of compassion. That we physically, they say the whole body is hands and eyes and the, and the, the, the painting you'll see is Avalokiteshvara, who's the bodhisattva of compassion. And she, um, and she has a thousand hands and a thousand arms and hands and each hand has an eye in the palm. And, and it, it's to symbolize touching and seeing the world, being in contact with the world. It's a physical image that enlightenment takes at this point. There's a physicality and it's the sensitivity of enlightenment. That enlightenment is not dry and distant and aloof, but it sees, it touches, it knows directly the reality of human life, of sentient life. And it responds with an attunement and a sensitivity and an empath, empathivity. That's not quite a word. I'm making that up. Empath, there's an empathic response because of the embodiment that the, 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 the philosophical um, um, conundrum that's really at the root of what I'm talking about is whether the body's to be transcended or transformed. And, and, the, and, and the problem is, if we really, really transcend the body, we die, right? To really transcend the body means there's no body anymore. And so the transformation of the body is indicated in these images of the physicality of enlightenment. And I'll end with a poem from Hakuin called The Song of Zazen. He says, all beings by nature are Buddha. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. And the implication here is apart from beings, there is no Buddha. He says, how sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing right now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land. This very body, Buddha. I'll read it again. All beings by nature are Buddha as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly is anything missing right now. Nirvana is right here before our eyes, this very place, the lotus land, this very body, Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.